ready? Yep. Cool. So, hey everybody, welcome to the show. Um, just want to apologize again for last week for getting the show up late. I was in Vegas and uh, yeah, we won't go into that. Um, my guest this week is Diane Smith, who is running for Congress in Montana. We have our lone congressional seat. Um, we still have two senators, but we only have one congressman. And um, in a body of 543, that puts a lot of responsibility on that one person. And for some reason, you have decided that you want to do this. <laughs> Why? Yeah. Well, f first, shall we, shall we ask the obvious question? So does what happened in Vegas stay in, actually really stay in Vegas? Uh, it better. <laughs> <laughs> um, several people will know those stories. Um, you can probably find them on Facebook. But no, no, they stayed in Vegas. OK, then we'll move on to why I want to run for Congress. OK. Um, <laughs> you know, part of it, a large part of it is being a mom of a 17-year-old daughter. And, and looking at the future through the eyes of the kids and watching the gridlock in DC not get better but get worse. And, and knowing that I have some skill sets for bringing people together. I also have skills for creating jobs and, and economic growth. Um, you know, I've been part of three startup industries, so that gives me a certain background in how you grow an industry. And, and really wanting to put my skills to work to make sure that we have the best Congress we can possibly have and that we really get moving, because that's what we have to do now. We have to get moving. Well, so you've started the whole uh, campaign with, I'm a Montanan, you're a new Montanan, I basically. Am. 10 years. Um, you know, that's still new. Yep. I, I, I tend to think that after 10 minutes of living in the state, you're a Montanan, but um, there's a lot of people who are like, oh, she wasn't born here. That's that's a horrible thing. And I disagree with that wholeheartedly. And I read your book, um, thenewworld.com, and um, I, I share many of the uh, observations that you have, but from a different perspective, because I did grow up here in Montana, so it was kind of rural to begin with. But then I've lived in Houston and Portland and Phoenix, and then I lived in Caribou, Maine, little town of 8,000, so I, I, you know, I kind of got the whole, whole perspective as well. And uh, I thought it was very interesting that somebody who came from a, an, a very urban background would come to the same conclusions, because that kind of validates my perspective. So thank you for that. <laughs> Not seeking validation anywhere, but you know, it was very nice to see. Um, so when you're, you're wanting to look at the future and how you're going to change it, why is that just now? I mean, your daughter's turning 17, but I would assume that the entirety that you've been a mother, you've looked forward and thought, oh my god, this is going a, a bad direction. Yeah, but, but I have to say, I, I mean, I personally wouldn't have run while she was younger. Mm -hmm. um, and that was just a personal choice that I wanted to be able to spend. I was already, I've always, I've always worked, well, that's not true, I've, I've taken years off where I haven't worked. But I, I've, I've always worked outside of the home most of the time, and, except when I haven't. But you know, I've been trying to, to build a life where I could spend as much time with her as possible. And I wouldn't have taken on a job that required me, by definition of the job, to be out of the state four days a week, 45 weeks a year. I just, I, that for me personally wouldn't have worked. So, and now that she's a little bit older, it comes to the, this is something that you're really driven to do. Yeah, um, you know, you kind of do this because you're called to do it. You don't do it because, you know, it's it's not fun to campaign. Let, let me say that. I love the part where I get to talk to people and I get I get to meet all kinds of people and so forth. But this is the hardest professional work campaigning that I've ever done. 
So, so it's not because of that. You do it because you think you can make a difference. And I have to say, among all of the candidates I think are running, I think that we all feel that way. I, I think all of us believe we're doing it. We're trying to do it because we believe we can make a difference. Right. Um, having met several of you at the candidate forum, I was impressed with most everybody that's running. Um, so it's going to be a really tough decision come June, yeah. um, which is a month away. Yeah. <laughs> it's coming up fast. The year's almost over. Um, as you have, you've built up several businesses, one of which you built in Montana. Mm -hmm. So you know what the, the um, economic climate is, you know what the climate for business is in the state. And while those aren't directly areas that you can affect being a member of the US Congress, how is it that you're going to work to expand that? I know it's one of the focuses of your book. Yeah. I think one of the problems that we have in Congress right now with jobs growth and the, and the conversation about jobs and economic growth is there aren't enough people in Congress who've been entrepreneurs. And there aren't enough people who've been entrepreneurs anywhere other than big cities. So you do have some folks that come out of Silicon Valley, or you have some folks that come out of Northern Virginia. But you don't have folks that have been entrepreneurs in, in more remote places. The reason why that's important is there's this sense to me, whenever I'm in Washington, DC, that every small business has a big law firm on speed dial. <laughs> right, which no. just, right, which couldn't be less true. And as you travel around Montana, first of all, what you, what you see, it just smacks you, is everybody's an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. So we have a state full of entrepreneurs. And yet, you know, nobody talks about them when they talk about encouraging business. And it really was making me angry that they were being left out of the conversation. Also, the vast majority of our businesses here in Montana have fewer than 10 employees. And we tend to talk about startups as businesses that are one week away from having an IPO. That couldn't be farther from the truth. Right. You know, startups are mom and pops with three employees or just each other, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's, or the kind of stuff you're doing. You're, you're having a business where it's you, right? It's, it's you and it's, you know, it's, it's what you're creating. And that's really exciting. And we have that sort of entrepreneurial spirit across Montana, particularly, we also happen to have it across America, but we have it especially here, in part because people have been pioneering forever here. Right. The, it's the pioneer spirit of Montana that kind of lives on in interesting ways, um, it, both in positive and negative ways, let's be honest, because the pioneer spirit last year caused our session, I think. Hmm. Um, so have you been involved in local politics at all? I've I, I've been very involved in the community. I've been on the on the Flathead the Flathead County or the Whitefish Flathead City County Planning Board for almost the past year, um, and that's been interesting because it's very local and it deals with things like zoning and control. Um, we have some we have some big controversies going on up around Whitefish about control of extraterritorial jurisdictions and stuff like that. Mm, um, interesting. It, yeah, it'll it'll fast get very confusing, but but <laughs> I've been involved in that too. I tried to settle a lawsuit with the with the city of Whitefish in Flathead County, and it was hotly political, and you know everybody so had opinions about it. So the city was suing the county. Yep. Yeah, and 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 <sighs> I just believe that those kinds of lawsuits should be settled. Well, they should be, and I have a theory in politics right now. I think right now we're we're electing based on fear in a lot of cases, and um, and so we end up electing people that scare us the most with whatever it is that they're afraid of, and the fear mongering that goes on causes us to make decisions that are outside the norm for even 
you know, crazy people, let's be honest. And so we have had a, a lot of strange politics for the last 10 years because we've, for the first time in our history, really made decisions based on fear instead of taking a deep breath and going, no, ooh, let's do it right. So hopefully that's going to change. I haven't seen, and this has been nice, I haven't seen any fear-mongering from your side. I've seen concerns, you know, this is what we're worried about, this is what we want to change, but I haven't seen a lot of, no, this person is going to drive us into doom. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, again, in, in our race, I, I've, been, I've been very very pleased with, with the way that the race has run. Um, I've got a lot of regard for the other people who are in the race. Um, we've had very good discussions about the issues. Um, sometimes I do wish we could do more of a debate forum because just there, because there's so many of us, we've frequently mm -hmm. been precluded from that. So we answer, we tend to answer the same questions. You know, there's a certain point at which seven of us can answer the same question the same way. Right. Um, it's so, and I do think that there are distinctions among us, but it has nothing to do with thinking again that they don't want what's best for Montana or that they want to, you know, do something right. harmful to the country. I, I don't believe that. At all, it, it doesn't even enter into my thinking. No, and that's great. So we have in Montana uh, a really positive race for the primary for the Democrats for uh, the congressional position, uh, which is awesome. We have uh, then the you know whoever wins, and yeah, I'm assuming you or presuming it's you, and uh, and I'm cheering for like four people, so it's very bizarre <laughs> for me. Well, again, it would be nice if it's me, yes, um, since I'm here. <laughs> yeah, um, and uh, well, and Rob was actually the guest last week, so it, it's been fun to talk to you guys. Um, what I think is interesting though is everybody's kind of talking about no matter who wins the primary, we're all going to work together to win. Mm -hmm. The, the final election. That's awesome. And what does it take to go into an election going, okay, these are the people that I'm competing against, but I have to keep them as friends. What sort of conflict is that creating in your head? It, you know, not very much, but I have a long history of working with people that I might disagree with about things. When, when you come out of the, of the technology industry, that, like I did, and you start literally with AT&T, you know, before AT&T was broken up, and then you have to work with all of the, the eight companies that AT&T was broken up into. The Arbox. The yeah. Arbox, that's right. As, a, as an entrant into that market, you learn pretty fast how to work with people that you disagree with. I mean, they, <laughs> it, it, um, That's the nicest way I've ever heard that said when referring to AT&T. Yeah, you know, so, so I work with lots of folks over the years, whether it was folks having, having arguments over rural and urban kinds of policies, whether it was folks having arguments over new technologies, old technology stuff. I've been doing that my whole career. So I don't start a conversation, uh, let me say this differently, I rarely start a conversation from the premise that the person sitting across from me is an idiot. <laughs> I, I start a conversation from the premise that the person sitting across from me is trying very hard to achieve a certain set of objectives, and so am I. And sometimes those objectives intersect with one another. Where they do, call it, you know, accept victory for both of you and go, mm -hmm. we've intersected, we have an agreement. And then where they don't, talk respectfully and, and knowledgeably about, about what it is that you're both trying to do and see if you can work out a way to get there. There are companies that I've done business with where I've walked in and said, you know that we are never, ever, ever going to agree on this particular position. And they go, that's absolutely right. And we go, okay, let's keep going. Yeah, well, as long, yeah. As, you, as, long as you understand. I mean, there's, there's ground rules to doing business. And 
you're one of the few people running for office that has been in a specific, you know, specifically not in a government-related business. You're not a lawyer. Um, I actually am a lawyer. Well, but, you are right, a lawyer, but, but I'm sort of a non-practicing <laughs> lawyer, right? Uh, you have a law degree, and you're not practicing law. You're actually working in telecommunications, and you started a business in Whitefish when you moved there eight years ago. Yes, right. It was actually we started it six years ago. Okay, yeah. and oh, well, what is that? No, I started it eight years ago. We moved ten years ago. Okay, right. So, what was that business? The business is now called Avail TVN. It's a, it's a great story. I actually lecture at the University of Montana, I guess lecture on entrepreneurship and tell the story of this business because the folks at the business school there thought that the, the sort of evolution of this business was a worthy discussion to have with the entrepreneurship students. And in 2004, I was approached by a young technology genius who said, I have an idea for a technology company that I'd like to put here in Montana, and I hear you have a big background in telecom. Yes. And yeah, both my parents worked for the, the system. Dad was a forecaster, mom did sales. Both my grandfathers were VPs for Bell, one for Mountain Bell, one for Bell Labs. So Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> the entire family. I we're all connected by RJ forty five. Right. And everybody in the industry, as you know, it's a small community. So this young man you know, said, I'd like your your input into this business. Long story short, I became the CEO of that company and we took it. His genius, because I'm not an inventor, I'm a, it's my brother who's a musician likes to say some people are composers and some are arrangers. You, Diane, are an arranger, not a composer, right? I, I'm, so Perfectly I'm not, valid use of art. <laughs> right. I'm not, a, I'm not an inventor. He was the inventor. And the first thing we did was we went on a tour of small Montana phone companies. And we drove all over the state to find out where their technology was at, whether they were interested in the kind of service that we'd envisioned. And we literally just talked to them about what their hopes were for the kind of business that, that we were offering, which was a business to take all, all of the same cable signals, Showtime, HBO, Discovery Channel, et cetera, and re-encode re them in a super compressed format called MPEG-4. And so that was a very complicated business because not only did MPEG-4 encoding barely exist, it's Really high-end math. Right, right. <laughs> so it um, takes a lot of processing power to work. It's, it's a whole lot of algorithmic kinds of stuff and so forth. So it, it, it was not only that piece, but then we had to get the legal agreements from the programmers themselves to allow us to re-encode their signals and their programming in MPEG-4. And it was very complicated, and we, you know, that's I did, you know, do a lot of the legal work for that. I did a lot of, you know, just the contracts work and, and stuff like that, more from the business perspective. But, right. but I, I helped in the negotiations. Like I knew what I was doing, and and so we started that business, and that was in 2004. In 2006, we put together our first three million dollars with angel investors, a small Montana phone company. You know, folks who were a very small number of folks who were interested in seeing this business succeed. And with $3 million, we managed to accomplish what our competitors had failed to accomplish with $100 million. Wow. And so Wall Street started paying attention. We did a big demo of some technology in early 2006 up in Whitefish at Grouse Mountain Lodge. And it was the first time that, that anybody had distributed fully MPEG-4 encoded, encrypted, satellite distributed programming in North America. And we did it out of Grouse Mountain. Nice. And we'd invited 30 people to come to this demo and 60 some people came. Hmm. 
So we knew we were onto something, and it was a success. And after that, we were able, folks, you know, we got the attention of money folks and so forth. So then I went out to raise $12 million. And this was in late 2006, early 2007. And I met some folks who said, you need more than $12 million. And they were venture capitalists, and we'll help you with that, but you've got to restructure the company a little bit. So I said, I'll restructure the company, and in fact, I'll even leave, because you're about to become a big company, and I don't like doing big companies anymore. I got all the t-shirts <laughs> for big companies I need to have. Um, what? You don't want to carry around another trade show booth as the second person on the plane with you? I know. It's just, it, I, you know, and I loved my experiences with, with big corporate America, and so it was fine, but I'm so done with that, and my focus is really on small startup businesses, and it oh. had been for a long time. I was passionate about that. I still am. And, and I said, but, but the only requirements that I have are twofold. One, you keep all of technology development in Kalispell. And two, everybody keeps their stock options. Because we had structured the company in a way where every single employee had stock options. It's really important to me. And so the company still exists today. It has, I think, 35 employees in Kalispell that do the most cutting edge video compression and distribution technology development in the world. Um, and they all still have stock options. And the day that my Republican opponent's company was bought out by Oracle, mm -hmm. I had more than a few guys call me and say, you know, if we got bought out for that amount, do you know how rich we'd be? Um, which was just, I mean, these are, these are young kids, for the most part, from Montana, who are now part of something that gets covered by Wired magazine and all, you know, they're renowned nationwide for being rock star technology developers as well they should be. And I'm very proud of them and I'm very proud of the company. It's, it's, been, a remarkable, it's been a remarkable run. So I left there though in two, late 2008. Okay, so you left that in 2008 and then you decided to run this year and you've been on a planning council. What have you been doing in the meantime? I wrote the book. I wrote thenewworld.com, and I've been doing some cons yes. Go ahead. It, it, I was going to ask about the book. Is it available as an ebook? It is. Okay. In fact, um, it's available on Amazon and on Kindle. Okay. Um, I'm a big downloader. Not is, it, is it also on iBooks? Uh, no. Only, I've only done it so far on Amazon and Kindle. When I get time, I'm going to take care of the iBooks part of it, but I haven't had time since I started the race. Um, totally understandable. Right. And then and I did some consulting for some small rural telephone companies and some rural policy work that was going on about, again, funding for rural infrastructure for broadband, because um, I'm a big proponent of making sure that, that we continue to support rural broadband deployment, because in a state like ours, we're, we need it. Right. We're in really good shape in some places and really not very good shape in others. Um, and it's just amazing how many policy folks you talk to in this space that don't understand how much rural America relies on broadband connectivity and how much it's changed our economic choices. Right. Um, and those are big topics that you cover in the book. Yep. Um, and once again, everybody, that is thenewrural.com. The and I will include links to it on Good. Amazon so that people can get to it. Um, it's not a long read. It's got a lot of data in it. And it's structured really easy to get through and, and kind of make sense of where you're coming from. Um, there was uh, <laughs> the thing in this. I love this quote, actually. This cracked me up. They see no contradiction in their calls for limited government and continued government funding for various rural causes. Um, 
a more accurate description of Montana there might not be. <laughs> so it, getting into some of the politics that go into what you're dealing with in rural America, um, we definitely like to be the masters of our own destiny. Yep. Uh, we have worked very hard to make Montana its, uh, sustain itself, or at least appear to sustain itself. Um, there are a lot of times when um, we argue against getting the checks from the feds, not because we can't use the money, but because we don't think the federal government can afford to spend it, um, which becomes an interesting conundrum for us. How are you going to deal with that sort of dichotomy of thinking when you get into Congress? You know, because it's not just us that run into this. We're, there, are, there are a bunch of the, the quote-unquote square states that are faced with infrastructure needs that are far beyond their own resources to take care of, and on some level, they have to take the, the government checks to do it. But most of that is because we want to keep them at a level that doesn't, you know, they don't turn into third world countries. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with the constituents who don't understand that? Yeah, I, I, and I think part of it is bringing real life examples home. So let, let's use post offices because, you know. Big, big issue right big, now. Big issue right now. Um, that We look at post offices, which we have been doing, as sort of, this one-size-fits-all kind of solution. And, and we're looking at closing down rural post offices, in, which are in many instances the hub of the town in, in a state and, like ours. Yeah, it's not like there's five post offices in Tudot, Montana. That's exactly right. There's no alternative. You can be 85 miles away from the next nearest post office. I mean, this happens over and over and over. We've had, we have a long history of making policy decisions that say that our ability of rural America to be a full-blown participant <clears throat> excuse me, in the rest of America is really important and that density alone won't sustain it. So whether it's highways that go through places that make no sense from a density perspective, we've decided that it's important to reach those places. Whether it's post offices, which, and I think that we are about to, I'm, I'm actually hopeful that we're about to start distinguishing rural post offices from other post offices and determining that there should be a separate set of standards for closing a rural post office that might not apply in Washington, D.C., where you can have 50 of them in a 10-mile radius. Well, or even in Helena, Montana. They're talking about closing rural post offices in the state of Montana, and I'm looking around Helena, and we've got three post offices in Helena proper. We've got another one in East Helena that doesn't even deliver to the entire city. Close three of them. Right. You know, if you need to consolidate, consolidate into one of those buildings in the area because East Helena is not that far away. And there's absolutely no reason since they're not getting direct to house service anyway that you'd even worry about it. You close it down, not a big deal. And nobody in this city would care. But when they're talking about closing down the post office in Winnet, Montana, which is the only one for 65 miles in any direction, and those people are not going to be a part of America anymore, effectively, because they can't even get Amazon at that point because the post office actually gets contracts from Amazon to deliver things that are both UPS and FedEx. There is no way that that is sustainable. That will destroy many parts of America. And, and you look at these people and they're going, well, it's all rural America. Well, by one of the 17,000 definitions that you outlined very succinctly <laughs> in your book, and yeah, all of Montana is rural America. There's only a million people in the entire state where there are cities that have far more people in them inside their actual urban boundaries. Great, I understand that. But you can't do that. Well, and, and the reasons that we don't want to, the reason that we don't want to cripple these small towns, first of all, they feed the world. 
Right. Let's just start there, you know, kind of without without our our state, you know, growing wheat and doing what we do, we're not going to feed the world very well. That will get very ugly very fast. We provide more people per capita to our military. So, you know, in our state, we're, I think if, if the number's right, we are the second largest per capita military state in, in, in the U.S. It's huge. So there are lots of very positive reasons. Again, I'll come back to, we innovate better. Mm-hmm. We invent stuff all the time. Right, and a lot of it's because we walk into situations where it's like, oh, I can't drive the 82 miles to do this in the next 10 minutes. How can I make this happen? Right. You know, right. Um, telemedicine is one of the things that you outlined in your book. Yep. Uh, which seems to be actually doing some stuff that I hadn't heard of, and I'm usually on top of this stuff, so. <laughs> I was a little bit, huh, I didn't even know that. Um, up in the Whitefish Kalispell area, you're doing a lot with um, uh, neuro- neurologists. Telestroke and neurologists, yes. yeah. That's amazing work. It's, 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 it's such amazing work, and it's such, again, talk about people coming together. We're talking about coverage of... I don't even remember the number I used. It's a really big number of square miles, it's, and it's in the book. I just don't remember what the number is. But this enormous expanse of space, and because of what we've been able to do with technology by all of our hospitals working together and coming together to make this happen, we now have access among, you know, beyond Flathead County's borders, which is, you know, huge unto itself. It's larger than the state of Connecticut. But even beyond that, all the way out to Libby and, and down in, into... into uh, Polson and beyond, we've got access to three neurologists 24-7 that, that we would never have had before but for technology, So there's all which we can use to do remote diagnoses and all kinds of stuff like that. We're going to use um, telepsychiatry for veterans and PTSD. How do we know that? Because we don't have enough psychiatrists in small towns. You know, we don't have enough psychiatrists in the state. The VA here has had a disastrous time trying to get them. Right. Now, you can't do it all via, you know, virtually. Right, but you could do the, the, the continuation of care. The initial, the triage and the, you know, getting them back into society, that you need to do one-on-one and in person. But uh, once they're back and living their life, you can't just cut it off. Right. And there's so many things that we do wrong. Let's get into veterans. Okay. <laughs> Let's get into some of the stuff that we do right, which is that we are trying. Right. Um, but we are failing in many, many ways. And, and Congress is, of course, the purse strings for all of this. How are you going to make a difference for the veterans as you step into a role, knowing that you, you're coming from business, which is not a ding, obviously. Um, what you've done is very impressive, but you don't have a military background. So for some reason, people think that you can't talk intelligently about something if you've never done it, which I always think is kind of bogus. Um, although I tend to... F- do exactly that. I will admit to falling into that mental trap. So how are you going to deal with people that are going, well, you just don't know right. when you step up to, to talk about these military issues because they are so important to Montanans. Yeah. I mean, part of that, it's, it's, it's like learning about anything, though, that, that you don't know. None of us comes to Congress as an expert in everything. So, so you have to come... Well, you, you wouldn't know that from the way some of them talk. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe if some of that humility, you know, kind of maybe what we need is some humility about what we know and what we don't know. So you can't be an expert at, at everything. And my dad was a Marine in, in World War II. My mom was, was stateside. She was in the Navy in World War II. So I was raised by two veterans. And I have extraordinary respect and admiration for what veterans do. I mean, again, my life is made possible by the sacrifices that they made. Um, there's, there's no doubt about that. So part of it is 
understanding what it is that we can do that might be a more efficient use of technology. I do bring that with me. That is a skill set that I bring where it's like, you know, so what if we hook it up, you know, we can do remote blood pressure monitoring. We can do all kinds of, of remote monitoring of folks that have chronic illnesses and so forth. So I do bring that with me to the party. But I think the biggest thing, and, and we talked about this even at the candidates forum that you were in, I think you got to stay in touch with the folks in your backyard. And I think you got to talk to them all the time and hear what it is that they care about and hear their potential solutions. You know, the folks on the street have really good ideas for how to fix things. And when folks say to me, I had somebody say to me the other day, you know, I've been trying to fill out this form for months and it just doesn't make sense. And you go, okay. Was why it a tax it? form? It, it, well, <laughs> it, it, this was actually related to veteran stuff. Um, you know, and it's like, why are we doing this? Why are we making this hard for people? Why don't we simplify and make more elegant the processes and the forms and the, you know, the access to the care that people need? So we are doing, we're doing better. The veterans that I'm talking to tell me that we're, that we're on the right trajectory, so we're doing something, but you know, we're doing something right, but we've got to do a lot more of it, and we've got to look at the future. We spend so much time fighting over what happened yesterday and so little time fighting over what we want it to look like tomorrow. We're America. We make big plans. We accomplish big things. We come together to achieve the impossible. And we're spending all of this time carping at each other about, you know, who said what and how they said it and how it was phrased. And, and I so want to get away from that. And I so <laughs> think the rest of America wants to get away from that. Oh, I do. Oh, what a delightful thought it would be to right. get away from that. <laughs> and, and so uh, now I'm going to just talk forever. You know? No, go right ahead. <laughs> and you're going, please stop and let, no, me, let no. me get a word in edgewise. It goes to this question, though, too, about what people want to see is their government being effective. And it goes back to the question that you asked about what do you say to people that are saying, get government out, oh, but give me the, you know, give me the money kind mm -hmm. of thing. Part of that is I think what they're saying is I want to see government work really, really well. I want to know that when I send my tax dollars in, they're being used efficiently, frugally, you know, we're stretching a dollar, we're not, we're not wasting dollars. I think that's universal. I think that we hear that both on the left and the right, that people really want to feel confident of that again. Yeah, well, people want to feel confident in their government. And government works really well when it's out of your way. And what kind of cracks me up about government lately um, and cracks me up. by crack me up, I mean actually causes one eye to bug out of my head and I screamed myself. Um, government lately has taken on this role of we have to protect everything from everyone or everyone from everything or both. And it's sort of this panicky 2,000 hands on one person thing that it's not only unsustainable, but it's completely ridiculous when you just take a breath and look at it and go, what are you trying to do? You know, we have regulations in place in this state that are that serve no purpose other than to restrict business, which, since that would be money that we could then tax, makes me wonder what people were thinking. And, and there had to be a reason. And I'm not saying that they were stupid reasons, but I am saying it was a bad reaction. So. Well, on Meet the Press this past weekend, David Gregory, said, I, I, I don't remember who he was talking to, but he, he, hands, he shows somebody the two pages of a 1040 easy form for taxes to fill out, because it was tax weekend, mm -hmm. right? And he literally, and he, he then hands them 88 pages of instructions. of instructions. 
And he said, so now we have 88 pages of instructions for the two pages of forms you have to fill out. Come on. It, you know, we can do better than that. There's a certain point at which you go, now we've entered, you know, we've the entered. The twilight zone. The twilight zone, right. You know, we, and we have. We've crossed over into the, the darkness on many, many issues. One of the things that um, I think, you know, our, our infrastructure is, is starting to crumble. And not because it was built badly, it's just aging. And we've put it through a lot more than we expected to when we built it. And we're not reinvesting in that because we're spending our money elsewhere. It's not that we don't have the money. It's that we're spending the money elsewhere, but we've got all these people that are like, well, I'm being taxed too much and we can't afford these things. Well, if we divert the money that we're spending on the war, I mean, like, give Montana five days of what we're spending in Afghanistan, we could repave the state. Right, <laughs> you right. Know? So there's an astounding amount of money that we're using for these uh, adventures, it would be a nice way of putting it, you know, these extravagant expenditures that are going into areas that are not going to directly improve our world if we were to walk away, you know? So, or at least that's how I see it. And I realize that I'm kind of a prick, so <laughs> I might not be seeing it the right way and I might not be the nicest person, but at some point we're gonna have to walk away from the Middle East and let it solve its own problems because it wants to be itself. And more power to them, you know? I think that they're great. That's, you know, do what you've gotta do. Know that if you attack us, we'll come back. Um, but I think we need to get out. We've, we've got other things that we need to divert that money to. And how are you going to, I don't know if that's your agreement or not. I don't know if that's where you stand. But the wars have been a huge expense. What is your take on them and what are you going to do to alleviate them, reduce their costs, rebuild the countries or whatever it is that you'd like to see done? My metaphor for this is you have to pay attention to the flight attendant's first rule you put your own oxygen mask on first, and then you put the oxygen mask on of the person next to you. <laughs> of any children of or any, people acting right? like children next to you. <laughs> We've spent a long time putting oxygen masks on in other people's countries. And we have not paid attention to the fact that at home we're kind of turning blue. And we gotta fix that. And you're absolutely, I mean, in a world where you have a finite pot of money, and let, we have a finite, it's not infinite. People who think that, you know, again, it's an infinite pot of money, it's just not true. We have, we have a finite amount of money and we need to spend it appropriately. And, and we, you know, I think one of the things that happens is we sort of feel like in order to do something different, we have to acknowledge that something went wrong. I don't think that. I think times change. And that there are things you do maybe in 2012 that you might not have done in 2002. And that's okay. And it's okay to say the times have changed and this is what we have to do now. And I completely agree with you. We have got, we don't have, I mean, not even the money part. Our military's tired. So, oh, going, you know, going absolutely. back to veterans, they're tired. We've overtaxed them in terms of just numbers of, you know, uh, numbers of tours and stuff like that. We have to pay attention to them. We have to get their oxygen mask on. And we can't do that if we've taken on the role of being you know, the world's traffic cop. We, that is not a role I see the US filling going forward. I think we will have a giant and important role in world affairs. We are the United States of America. You don't say that in any other country in the world where people don't know exactly who you're talking about and regard it with, with some amount of awe. So, we're going to have, we will keep a very large position in the world, 
but the part where you know we send our military in over and over and over again and and frankly charge it on a foreign credit card because we borrow money from it then from from other countries we can't keep doing that right it's not sustainable so what about uh, the other unsustainable things, or the things that people think are unsustainable? I, I, my politics always show through in this, so <laughs> I try not to, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I lose. Um, so the other thing, the environment and, yeah. and new energy, and this is something that you covered in your book and how um, distance used to be a tax on entrepreneurship in rural America. If energy continues to increase its costs, it could very well become that same sort of tax on entrepreneurship. What are you going to do to try to reduce that, to change how we're, how our energy comes from, what we're using to produce it, how we're taxing it, all that sort of stuff? So we've been Facebooking on energy this week. And one of the things that, so I'm happy you asked. One of the things that I'm happy, that I'm really happy we do about in this campaign is, is sort of like what you're doing. We pick a topic every week and I Facebook about it. And part of why I do that is so that people can get an idea of how I think through things. And I want them to understand as a candidate, here's how, I, uh, here's how I process things, here's some of the research that I look at. So one of the things that surprised me when I started looking to, to do this week's posts was, it, there were two things that surprised me. One was that when I put in energy policy into Google, it, like all the other countries came up, but nothing about the US. So I just found that interesting that England came up and Tanzania came up and Uganda came up all for energy policy, but we didn't. So I thought that was <laughs> interesting. The second thing was that there appears to be almost this agreement that in order to control climate change, you have to have higher fuel prices. And there's a whole wealth of economists who've written about this. I thought, well, that's a very interesting position to take because, again, coming from, coming from where I sit, high energy prices are a huge competitive problem for us. They're, an, they're a giant economic problem for us. So I tried to find places where we had asked the question, can we have environmentally sound solutions that also bring down the cost of energy? There's very little work that's been done in that space. Although, interestingly, across Montana, people are doing it. So you know, the question isn't to me, can we build a biofuel that we can include into, mix into our gas tanks, but that costs $12 a gallon? Because then if the biofuel plus the, you know, the fossil fuel, if the net price of that is eight bucks a gallon, then frankly, I don't think we've, you know, we, have, not done anything we, we haven't helped ourselves very much. If on the other hand, we can build a biofuel for two bucks a gallon, yeah, I wouldn't be mixing gas in. <laughs> all of a sudden, all kinds of things start to open up. And we build these biofuels here. We are working on biofuels all over the state of Montana. Part of it is because we have the resources to do it with. Right. And part of it is we have pioneers who are willing to go into this space. Now, what we haven't done is move them from the garage or you know their small office building, whatever, onto the grid, the commercial grid of gasoline and, and electricity and so forth. We don't do that very well. But I don't think that's all that hard. I mean, again, I come from an industry where you took big legacy networks and you made them Facebook accessible. So I don't look at this and go, this is an insurmountable problem. And in fact, so one of the things that you hear over and over is big oil has a history of buying up innovation and shelving it. True, right. right? Absolutely. 
So one of the things, and I said this on Facebook this week is, the next time you're a startup energy guy and somebody comes to you and says, I want to buy your innovation, tell them that you want a contractual provision that permits you to post your invention on Facebook in 48 months if it hasn't been used commercially by then. Call the question. I'm a big negotiator. So, you know, put them in a position where they have to decide whether or not shelving your technology for four years is worth whatever money they're going to put into it, or are they willing to really consider that, you know, again, if it's not commercially viable, it's not commercially viable, and you're putting it on Facebook, won't make one well, ounce of difference to them anyway. Right. So, but if they're really interested, then call the question. And that was something we couldn't have done 20 years ago. Because 20 years ago, if you'd had a great invention, but you didn't have a way to publicize it, the fact that you were the disgruntled inventor and you, you, know, you ran an article in the Billings Gazette, well, that wasn't going to make it to China. Right. But if you Facebook about it today, I have this great invention. This is what it looks like. Here's my source code, as it were. What we do in technology is public, you know, you, you open source it. Right. Right. We have all kinds of opportunities for that. And I think the energy community needs to be looking at more open source models for making their technologies available, for making them buildable and stuff like that. There's, and there's still profitability in those hills. Again, the technology industry is ripe with open source stuff that's gone on where people have made a lot of money. Mm -hmm. I think we can do that in new energy too. And, and environmentally sound, safe energy that I think also brings down the cost. And I think we ought to be having that discussion. And we ought to be having it with new guys, legacy guys, make them sit at a table and go at each other a little bit. Cool. So as you um, step into your role as a congresswoman from Montana, one of the things that I have not seen a lot of um, going on between our congressional, uh, Denny Reberg, you know, he holds the seat right now, and um, the statewide offices is a lot of coordination to get business into the state. How, regardless of who wins uh, the governor's seat, how are you going to work with them to uh, expand Montana on an international role? Yeah, a lot of that is profile. When, and you, you read about this in the book. When I started raising money for, for, for our company in 2005, I actually had a VC say to me, I know more about doing business in China than I know about doing business in Montana. But I also know that that wouldn't happen today. Literally, that, that short period of time has made an enormous difference. Folks want to invest in this state. They, they see, I get calls weekly from people who want to do business in this state. Now, they're not going to do it based on a set of rules that are different from the way that they do it in Indiana or some. I mean, so there's, there's just a set of rules they're going to play by. But they want to invest in this state. They see the pioneering that goes on. There, are, there is a, Governor Schweitzer's been amazing at this in terms of profiling Montana businesses and really sort of heightening the perspective of people of what Montanans are doing. And, and I think actually Senators Baucus and Tester have been very good. You know, when you're Senator Baucus, you can bring the world to Montana, and he has. There right. is always a contingent of, you know, of worldwide investors and thinkers and thought leaders that are coming to the state. So I think part of it is building on that. We, we do a lot right in that regard. What we have to do also, though, is recognize what our fundamentals are. So R&D. We do a lot with R&D in this state. Um, there's a company down in Bozeman called Ligacite that's making, that's making a stomach flu vaccine. And 
stomach flu is one of the lead causes of loss of productivity worldwide. And Legacite's been working on it with the Department of Defense. They're working on it with the Department of Defense because DOD got tired of turning around submarines in the middle of the ocean to go back to port after there'd been an outbreak of stomach flu. <laughs> They're ready for human testing. I mean, this, is, this vaccine has come a very, this little company with 37 employees has done a great job of, of getting this, this vaccine ready for prime time. But if they lose their R&D money for the next year, it slows down. Yep. So, so part of it is being very specific about what we need. And we have a lot of work that's going on with, that's very good return on investment work that we do with federal R&D money. And we need to pitch the case that this is great return on investment money. Uh, again, I think most people are willing to pay taxes for things that have a great return on investment. I Absolutely. think, that, right? They're not willing to pay money for things that they think are frivolous or inefficient or something like that. But we have dozens of experiments statewide and, I, and dozens of experiences statewide where we can show extraordinary return on investment for the R&D money that we've invested. Well, and so it looks like you've got everything going for you. You've, you've run a business, you've done the family thing, um, your kids are old enough that you can, step, or your daughter, I guess. Right, our and, only, yep. Yeah, is she's old enough that you know she won't feel abandoned if you go off to Congress and do this. You really fell in love with the state when you moved here, and uh, you've been successful pretty much in everything that you've done. And then you've decided that you wanted to jump from the fires of you know that you enjoy into a frying pan, which may or may not be filled with monsters as well. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> what's, it, what's the change that's gone on since you've stepped into the campaign for you? You know, having never done this before, I, I'm, I'm not a politician. And, and I'm, I sort of agree with, with Albert Einstein on this. I think it's part of my, I, I think it's part of my assets, not my, not my disadvantages. I think it's very tough to solve a problem when you send the same sensibilities in that caused it to begin with. Nah. <laughs> Um, and, and, and Albert Einstein has a couple of quotes that sort of that are along those same lines. And, and I wanted to bring a different way of thinking and a different and a, and a set of accountabilities. One of the things you learn in business is to be accountable. And you learn how to get things done and how to get them done in a timeline. You know, time is money. Mm -hmm. And we tend to be kind of frivolous with our time sometimes from a government perspective. Uh, yeah, not passing a budget for two and a half years. Yeah, which again, who... You know, <laughs> we need to do that. That's part of the job. It's part of the accountability. I'm sorry if, you know, if it's uncomfortable or awkward or politically unpalatable, do it anyway. That's the job. But you won't get elected again if you do that. <laughs> you no, know, I, think, I think actually, you know, the, the folks who, who care least about getting reelected are the folks that we need to have in, in Congress. Because it's not about not listening. You ought to listen. You absolutely ought to listen to every, again, I'm big on coffee shops and grocery stores and school PTAs and all that kind of stuff. You need to be listening to everybody. But having said that, you also need to do what's right. And sometimes it's hard to explain. Some of this is really complicated. Um, and, and you, you know, but you ought to have to try and explain it so that everybody understands why you did it. Maybe they disagree with you. Maybe they send you home. But this part where you go and you think you got to stay there forever, our daughter very early on, somebody said to her, 
um, which are, you know, we were actually all at dinner and somebody asked me, would you accept term limits? And our daughter looked up and went, your problem will be getting her to stay, not getting her to go. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm a fixer, right? I come into industries where there's got to be change and growth. That's what I do. I do change and growth. And, you know, if I could get this back on track or have any small part of getting it back on track, I'd consider it a day and I would happily move aside for the folks who are better at making trains run on time than I am because I'm not the trains run on time guy. That's why I left, you know, big corporate America. Right. And understanding, it's interesting that you have a level of self-awareness like that because most politicians do not. Um, sorry to say that. I've met most of them and, and a lot of times you're like, oh, pretty. Um, I'd be happy if somebody said that about me. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we run into a lot of situations where politicians just have no idea that they've stepped off um, the cliff. You know, they think they're standing on solid ground and they're tr actually trying to fly. Um, so it's interesting to hear somebody who's got the background that you have. You've, you've been successful in business. You've, you've lived in both rural and urban America, you understand being inside the Beltway, you certainly understand being outside of it, and why you would agree <laughs> to go back into that. It's, there's got to be some part of you that really is truly about what you say you're about. It has to be true because nobody volunteers to go into that just because they want to get back to D.C. You know, and, and, and I take heat sometimes for, for suggesting that, that I think one of the smarter things we could do is have members of Congress stay home three weeks a month. And, and go to DC one week a month. Um, and, and that's a kind of controversial thing to say. But it, it goes to, again, I just think the wisdom's in your backyard. Right. I think the solutions that we're looking for are far more in the backyards of America than the beltway of America. And Well, I would agree with the whole, they need to be around more often, but I would say they'd be better off if they took two months and just were back home. Rather than, because there's a lot of debate that needs to go in. Bills need to be written correctly. They need to be reviewed. Lawyers need to look at them and actually, and you could do this yourself, obviously, since you've got a law degree, but look at what the language says and translate it. Because sometimes we have bills that go through that just have really, really horrible implications because nobody's read them. Oh, well, you know, this is another real thing for me that, that I'm a proponent of. I don't think we should pass any legislation that hasn't been posted on the internet. No, absolutely. It's just, we live in an era now where you can, again, you can do that. You couldn't do that 40 years ago, so you had to cut your deals, and you know you went into back rooms and stuff like that. Here's an idea. Post it on the internet. Let the American people read it. Yeah, and if it's so complex or so long that it cannot be read by the average American, and I'm not saying, you know, well, okay, average American. C-plus students is what I'm looking at. But if they can't read it and understand it, or at least get the gist of it, it's wrong. It, There's no nice way to say that. It's wrong. Whatever law you're trying to pass at that point, if it cannot be distilled down to simple understanding by human beings, not lawyers, <laughs> no offense, but when you're a lawyer, you put away your humanity sometimes, which is a good thing. It needs to go away because sometimes you need to be very logical about something. But if it can't be understood by human beings, it shouldn't be passed. Uh, and I'm gonna, I agree with you completely, and I'm going to tell you a story that affirms it. Okay. The 1996 Telecom Act, which unleashed probably more innovation across America than any piece of legislation we've passed for decades, clearly because the internet sort of exploded and Facebook and Twitter and all this stuff kind of happened after that. You know how long it was? How long? 128 pages. It was so elegant 
that people from across America, workers in small companies and innovators and all that, were calling me, going, now I'm a little confused by this thing on page 64, but the fact that people read it, workers read it, ordinary folks read it, innovators read it, and they all went, okay, I know what I can and can't do. They read it in an afternoon, I mean, it's 128 pages, they read it in an afternoon or two, right. didn't take them a year and a half, they understood what the ground rules were, which, by the way, were hotly debated, and everybody fought. Oh yeah, over it was them, a nightmare, you know, right? Like crazy. <laughs> it may be elegant, but it was a nightmare. But and there was stuff that, again, that, that that was you know that folks got wrong, but in part because it was 1996, it was the beginning of the internet. We were barely you know we were barely figuring it out at the time. Mm -hmm. um, so you know it wasn't perfect, but there was there was an elegance to it that allowed exactly that accessibility that you're talking about. And I'm such a proponent of that. And I'm such a proponent of getting back to basics with that. You know, there's a lot of common sense in getting back to basics. Right. So back to, and this is sort of related to your four-year thing with um, oil and gas and energy and all of that, or the rumors with oil and oil companies. Um, patents. Oh, yeah. Technology patents. Um, I, I will give you my side on this because I don't want you to feel like you're being attacked. I think that technology patents are the most useless POSs ever, and they should not be legal because it's math. And you cannot patent something that was invented in Plato's time period. So, you know, I, I don't care how complex it is, I don't care what magical things you're doing with it, it's still math. I'll tell you a funny story about that. Okay. We built this entire IPTV company, mm -hmm. and we never filed a patent for anything. And we didn't because it costs about 25000 bucks to file a patent and take it all the way to conclusion. Oh, yeah. And you're three years away from doing that anyway. Well, if you're a real software company that's going as fast as we are. Yeah, by the time you get to three years, you're far beyond it. Right. Our software would change by next week. So, it, you know, we never filed for a patent. So, I, you know, I understand the limitations. In the book, one of my sentences, I think one of, one of the... The first sentence of the economic development chapter, I say, when I lived in D.C., I knew 20 patent lawyers, but not a single inventor. Right. Within months of moving to Montana, I knew a dozen inventors, but only one patent lawyer. Mm -hmm. Why the disconnect? Well, and, and how are we leaving our inventors underprotected? Absolutely. Right? I'm, so, we, we just reformed patent law, which I had nothing to do with. I had no dog in that fight. We changed patent law. I think reform is, an, is an, uh, a rather optimistic term for what we did. In, so, in fact, I, I think you and I are actually in violent agreement over this. Uh, um, I, I, got, I got one of those memos from the, you know, one of those big law firms. They sent out the summary, and the first line was, we changed our pat we, we revised our patent laws so that now... It's, it's first to file, not yep, first, first to, to invent. invent. That's, not, that's not changing your patent laws. That's allowing for scooping. Right. I, I was... I, I Appalled. Was, yeah. Would and, be. <laughs> and, 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 you know, I do, I do a lot of work with U of M. I, I, do, I do some work with George Mason University where I went to law school. And, and I do... So as a result, I do work with their technology transfer offices, these universities. They don't stand a chance. They don't have the law firms that can prosecute this kind of stuff. Um, so part of this to me is how do you protect the inventor? 
Well, but it, part of it is how are, you, how are you actually making your invention? If your invention is how does something work on a software platform, you're not actually inventing anything. You've drummed up something and you've done code for it. And while some of that's impressive, that's called writing. And that goes under copyright and trademark law. That does not fall under a patent. And I'm not even a lawyer, and I've figured this out. Come on, people. This is not that hard. And while you know, I'm a huge Apple fanatic, and I love the stuff that they've built, the fact that they're suing people for patents on a slide screen, bite me. There's, there's no nice way to say this. Right. You know, it's ridiculous, and it's a waste of time and money, and it stops people from going out there and doing really, really cool things. There's another patent that Twitter has uh, applied for, which was done by Lauren Brichter, who did Tweety, which was one of the clients. But it's the slide to uh, pull to refresh. Okay. That couldn't exist on any other operating system than iOS because iOS built the tools to make it. Yet for some reason that's supposed to be patentable? No. No, it's not. And these companies that go out and sue, there's a bunch of companies that got sued um, because they're, uh, and Apple's in the middle of this now too, and this one is ridiculous, but they're getting sued because their use of something that was covered by a patent is part of their, you know, it's part of using the store, the Apple store, the okay, iOS okay. store. And they're saying that not only is Apple in violation, but all of these little companies are in violation of this patent. That's stopping innovation. Right. That's doing the exact opposite of what it should do. And then we've got, you know, this is where the government just it overreacts and it goes in these odd directions. We've got a lawsuit that came out two weeks ago where the... Uh, Justice Department is suing five publishing companies and Apple for the uh, agency model when what they should have been doing is going after Amazon for their illegal use of their monopoly position in selling books to force publishers to give them the rights to sell their books at less than cost to drive down the cost of ebooks. That is an illegal use of a monopoly. The monopoly was perfectly legal because they were the largest bookseller. But they turned around and tried to use it to create an ebook monopoly. And that is illegal, and the Justice Department never went after them for that. And these sort of things make me crazy. Can I change it? <laughs> I, I'm looking for a question out of that. Sorry, I just went on a rant. No, it's, but, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. But I don't, so I don't understand a lot of the stuff that goes on. But I, don't, I also don't understand 1,200 page laws that people who are supposedly sponsors have said they've never read. Um, we won't mention any names. <clears throat> Um, I have problems with that. I have huge issues with our politicians not stepping up to the plate and accepting responsibility when they've done something wrong. They've let government become, in the words of Pendulette, a ratchet. It always gets worse. Yeah. Um, we have to make it better. And are you willing to stand on that floor and call people out to make it better? Well, you'll, you might even know this from now. I don't have a long history of keeping my opinions to myself. <laughs> um, Funny, neither do I. <laughs> you know? Although I do, I also don't have a long history of making it through hours and hours of talking without swearing, and I've managed to do that pretty well. <laughs> I, I don't, I, I'm with you on that one, too. I, um, I, did clean up my, I did clean up my act, my swearing act, before running. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, we, are, we are fighting for something that's really important. I love this state. I love this country with, with all my heart. We, you know, Winston Churchill says America, uh, America gets it right after they've tried everything else. Well, you know, we'll get there eventually. I, right. I love this. You know, we do get it right. We're a rough and tumble crowd with a lot of spirit and a, and a lot of potential in front of us. We still own the internet. 
you know, kind of the, the, the greatest, is sort of the greatest pioneer field of, of the last 50 years, let's say. You know, it's ours. Um, we can do this again, whether it's on energy, whether it's in, you know, stuff we haven't even thought of, whatever atom splitting, we, you know, might go on. We can cure cancer if we set our minds to it. I believe that. And this is really important. So if the question is, and, and you know, I, I'm sure I'm going to take heat about this, you know, will I let party t trump principle in that regard? No. And, and I haven't, you know, I've... I blazed so many trails in corporate America. I was the first woman in so many rooms that I can't begin to, in fact, when I started the campaign, everybody said, talk about it all the time. I was like, I can't even remember it. I, there were so many rooms where I was the first woman. And, and I became very good at explaining, you know, kind of why this was right and not that. Um, which, which had nothing to do with being in rooms with folks that were, that were wrong-headed. It does have sort of, there is sort of a group think thing, though, that goes on where everybody gets together. I, li I literally have come into rooms and said, oh, my gosh, you've all been talking to each other again, haven't you? <laughs> yes, the echo chamber. Stop doing that, right? You know, as soon as everybody tells you you're right, get you're, very nervous. Yeah, because something's gone wrong. You've right. missed something. Right. And it's never going to be 100%. You're never going to please all the people. And... You know, there's a lot of uh, national candidates that do flip-floppy randomness because they think they can please whoever they're near right then and nobody else is going to hear it. And it's amazing to me that people do this. Do they not understand the Internet's there? <laughs> well, I, I do think that in politics, we have yet to acknowledge the technology revolution that occurred. Um, and it changed. Again, we haven't done it in government. We haven't streamlined government to reflect Internet time. We, you no. know, everybody else is living in internet time. And yeah, I'm waiting to be able to uh, you know, renew my license via Twitter. <laughs> hey, I'm still in Montana. Can I get a new copy? Here's my photo. Right. Right? I, <laughs> Will this work? Yeah. No, and, and, you know, and I get that we're in a transition. <laughs> One in five Americans still don't have, you know, still aren't hooked up to the internet. So it's not, you know, we don't want to leave people behind. But, but certainly we can start making that transition and we could do it, I mean, we have been doing this now for 20 years. So the part where the revolution has kind of occurred, I think everybody got that memo. And it, you know, so in schools, it, you know, I'm still worried about school curriculums because we teach kids from a curriculum that was in many ways put together 100 years ago mm -hmm. when they needed to work in authoritarian, hierarchical, you know, rigid sorts of environments where memorization really mattered and so forth. Asking a kid to memorize these days, they have a smartphone. They're not going to, right. they don't need to, they don't need to chew up the bandwidth, their own personal bandwidth, to memorize nearly as much as they used to. They can use that ability to do something else. Well, and I wonder, you know, going along with that, and I have talked to a couple of my friends in the education field, and they, they are very big on, you know, Training people what happened isn't nearly as important as why. Um, you know, the outcome point is just a point in time, whereas the why is going to be, you know, how did we get there? How do we avoid it next time? And so, when I, you know, when you and I were in school and we had to do the whole, well, you memorized that the War of 1812 wasn't in 1812. Um, <laughs> you know, little things like that. The useless facts that stay with you forever. But I don't remember why it wasn't in 1812 and how it ended up with the name. Um, I also don't remember what they went to war over, and that would be far more useful to me, you know, because I'd probably win at Jeopardy with it. But, <laughs> but 
having the tools to go look it up means that I don't have to anymore. And if that's what the kids can use, they, can, they should be able to get farther in their education. So by the time they graduate from high school, they have a much better grasp on what they're going to do with their lives because they know where their interests lie. They know, because everybody has interests. Everybody has some idea of what they're looking up and how that ties into education. So I don't understand why we wouldn't want to use those tools. Right. So. And again, and I, and I think we will. I think the only question is how fast are we going to go there? And, you know, are, are we going to do it slow or are we going to do it, you know, medium or are we going to do it fast? We missed fast, by the way. So, so that option is no longer <laughs> even on the table. But can we catch up? But yeah. Yeah. Because, again, you know, if, as you travel around the world, we, we do well. We do well with change. You know, we adapt. It, it, somebody asked me this question this morning. I, I told you I was, I was on these, this other show. Somebody asked me a question about diversity. And I was like, I'm good with diversity. I think it's part of our strength. I'm not, you know, I don't fear it. I have, I have no, you know, this is who we are. We're very good at accommodating different cultures, different perspectives, different ideas. That is part of our strength. We should embrace that. And I'm not worried about that. You know, and I, it, the question was, was as much about... Um, you know, kind of Middle Eastern culture taking over ours. I was like, well, if you want to diminish women's rights, first of all, you're going to have to come through me. So <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> I um, and good luck to any of you that try it. She does have a battle axe, which you can't see, but there it is. That's right. So you know, I, I don't, I don't think we're going to do that. I think you know, we'll we'll pick the best and we'll move forward. But we have to give ourselves permission to do that. We have to give ourselves permission to take some risk again. Not, a t not the kind of risk that, that Wall Street run amok. That was, that yeah, was, but that's not risk. That's, that's greed. That's right. It's, it's, just, it's just craziness run amok, and, and we have to stop that. But, but in all of our lives, you know, again, we're producing things. We're inventing things. We're coming up with new ways of doing things. We're educating our kids in new ways. And I have a, you know, our, our daughter who's about to graduate from high school had five teachers at Whitefish High School who literally changed her life. They were life-changing teachers. They expanded it and grew her life in the most extraordinary ways. And, and again, they did that using very traditional methods. But she was also a pretty teched-up kid, you know, by virtue of my background. Huh, shock. Right. <laughs> so it was, you know, and my husband's too. It was, so it was just a good merger. Right, and one of her teachers the other night, she was. We were at the drama banquet, and um, one of her teachers said, "You taught me a lot," and it was one of the five that had changed her life. And I thought, what a what a great you know what a great thing for this teacher to say, that you've taught. But I also suspect it's true. We're all learning from each other. Generationally, we're learning from each other. Culturally, we're learning from each other. You know, process wise, we're learning from each other. Those are good things. We should embrace that. And not be, you know, not be afraid of it, as, as you said early on. I'm not worried about that. Very cool. Well, thank you for joining me. We've gone for a little over an hour. Um, Sorry. No, that's fine. I'm a talker. The, the, the beautiful <laughs> thing about doing this on the internet is it can go as short or as long as it wants to. Um, but let's quick give everybody information on how they can get in touch with you. You have a website. We do. DianeSmithForMontana.com. And you're on Twitter. We're on Twitter. Um, I, I, Diane at, Smith from, at Diane Smith from Montana okay. and Facebook so yep. facebook.com slash Diane Smith from Montana everything's okay. Diane Smith from Montana 
Um, <laughs> Good planning. Yeah, well, again, <laughs> Diane Smith was gone, needless to say, very early on. So, you know, kind of, I'm, I'm happy to take the Four Montana piece, um, but lots of other candidates just do their names.com. That was sort of unavailable for me with a fairly plain name. Um, and just, you know, again, for folks who are thinking about the primary, you know, my strengths in the primary are I've brought jobs and investment to, to Montana. I have a jobs plan up on the website. I'd love everybody to take a look at it, give us feedback, um, but it also will help us hit the ground running. And a lot of it is just common sense stuff like we've talked about today. I Facebook every week on a topic so that people understand how I think about things, because I think that's really important. I lecture and have written a book on technology and rural economic development. And like Albert Einstein said, I bring a different perspective to this, which I think is important because I think that we keep doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Right. Oh. Mm. Welcome to Crazy Town, people. Uh, it's government in 2012. So um, you also have an Act Blue page. Yep. 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 So um, we'll include links to all of those in the show notes. And just to remind everybody who is getting this via iTunes, the show notes are located at politicticboom.com. And this uh, episode is Diane Smith. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Wonderful to be here. And we'll talk to you all later.